Welcome to ACNL in Action, brought to you by the Association of California Nurse Leaders. I'm your host, Charlene Platon, and this is a podcast for anyone who wants to learn more about nursing, leadership, and everything in between. Today, we'll be talking with Joe DeMont, Chief Financial Officer of Open Door Community Health Centers, which is a nonprofit healthcare organization based in Northern California. Open Door has a dozen health centers across the region, serving over 50,000 patients a year, and Joe has been their CFO during a particularly challenging time for nonprofits and healthcare providers more generally. We are so excited to dig into some of these challenges and what they mean for nurse leaders. Thank you so much, Joe, for joining us today. Thank you, Charlene. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. I'm so excited about the mission and the role that California nurses in particular serve here. So it's an honor and privilege to be here. Thank you so much. Yes, we're so excited. And first wanted to just bring up that that Open Door recently celebrated its 50th anniversary this year. And how has that changed? You know, how has the organization changed in that time? And what would you say is on the horizon? That's a very good question, Charlene. The more I think about it, the more I conclude that the best answer would come from somebody who had actually been here 50 years ago, right? <laughs> so that's not me. I've only been with the organization a year. So mm-hmm. I am happy to expand on that role, which I know intimately well, of course. We do have a handful of folks that were around 50 years ago. Principally, 50 years ago, the organization was started almost as sort of a, a, a small office building with maybe three exam rooms. The founding father, founding mother, if you will, was a gentleman named Herman Spetzler and his wife, Cheyenne Spetzler. Both of them grew this almost one office, one room patient care facility into the organization that we are today. We span across two counties, Humboldt County and Del Norte County. This is up in the northwest part of the California. So if you look at the map, we're in the top two northwest sites. The Del Norte County, which is the northernmost of the two, is just by the Oregon border. But back to how much this organization has grown over 50 years, we now treat 60,000 unique covered lives across both of those counties. We do approximately 300,000 visits in 12 or so distinct site locations. And we also have mobile van and mobile dental. So for those patients who cannot get to us, we get to them. So it's been a fantastic ride. Again, we actually had, Charlene, a, um, a celebration around the holidays to recognize how much the organization has grown. As I said earlier, there are a handful of people that were here 50 years ago, which is remarkable. It, it speaks well of the mission, meaning it was a successful strategy and mission back then. It continues to be one of the legacy founders. So sadly, Mr. Herman Spetzler, who was the CEO, died suddenly about four years ago. His wife, Cheyenne, stepped into the role as CEO over the course of time. She stepped down into other roles. We did hire my boss, who, by the way, is also a California a registered nurse. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But she has helped transform this organization. What I know is it's grown so much so that what used to be what I'm going to call family sort of mom and pop business, it's actually grown so large now that the focus has been more on professional management. So my particular boss, the CEO, a gentleman by the name of Tori Starr, also is an RN, 
lots of experience in population health, which is what we do. And then a whole cadre of new sort of executives and, and healthcare leaders from an assortment of things have helped essentially transform the organization, today's modern, well-prepared organization to provide healthcare for now and into the future. That's wonderful, Joe. Thank you so much for sharing. And I wanted to comment too about how amazing it is to hear about the history of the organization. And what would you say is the biggest impact that Open Door has had on the community? And I'm also curious to hear about how you found about found out about Open Door and how you joined the organization. Sure. So serving indigent population, folks that traditionally are un- medically underserved was the core rationale for the dream, the vision that I said that Mr. Herman Spetzler and his wife, Cheyenne Spetzler, came up with about 50 years ago. So that mission, Charlene, has not changed. It hasn't deviated. They knew back then that, hey, these rural areas, and they are rural, by the way, they're very remote. These are folks who need healthcare, and they're simply not getting it. So that was the core mission back then. Now, of course, things have changed, right? The both areas that we served 50 years ago have grown. The population has grown. But even our single largest city, which might be Eureka, Arcata, that those two areas, maybe 150,000 people and, and some in the outer, outer areas, right? These are folks who normally would not be able to see and seek medical care. Many of them happen to be indigent, meaning impoverished folks, right, who actually are the poverty, the federal poverty level. So these are folks who need help and our organization is there to provide that care, right? We'll talk, I hope, a little bit about the tools and tactics and strategies that have allowed us to successfully reach these people, these folks, these patients who need care. How I got involved in uh, the CEO, who, as I said, is an RN by, by training. He and I have been friends for about eight years. We both used to work at one of the largest safety net provider hospitals in the Bay Area, worked at Alameda County Medical Center. So this is where our friendship first began. He and I have stayed connected. He actually went to school in that area when he was a young man and stayed connected sometime about a year and a half ago. I saw on LinkedIn that he had gotten a CEO spot and I reached out and congratulated him and he said, hey, what are you doing? I said, well, talking to you. He said, uh, do you know anything about FQHCs? I said, I, I do. I actually worked one in the Bay Area years ago. So one thing led to another, Charlene, and I've been by his side for at least a year. So that's how I sort of got into it. But the whole concept of both for him and for me, the organization, the organization fit nicely with our own personal profiles and the things we want to do to help the people that, that need the help. And so that, that fits in nicely, both of our lives and missions. Thank you for sharing. And it's really amazing to hear about the mission of Open Door. I love to hear about the community that Open Door supports. And there really is a big need in that population. And, you know, Open Door really appears to be more than just a health clinic, uh, offering food pantries as well as dental and behavioral health services. And can you comment a bit on how Open Door might be different from other healthcare providers? Can, Charlene. That's a very good question. My own background, I've had two, I'm going to say, tours of duty in the, in the federally qualified health centers, with, which is what Open Door is. I've worked at another federally qualified health center. I've worked for Catholic hospitals. I've worked for safety net hospitals. I've worked for small critical access hospitals and community, sole community provider hospitals. So I, I bring a pretty big range of skill sets and experiences. I can tell you all have sort of a uniqueness to them 
What is remarkable about this one is that there is still, despite this professionalization of the workforce that we have embarked in the last year or so, there is very much a family atmosphere. Let me explain. It is not unusual for um, uh, employees who have been seriously affected by COVID, either deaths in their own families or tragic events, some unrelated to COVID. It is quite customary, in fact, quite dramatic and touched my heart that we established a practice where if one of our employees has a family tragedy and needs to leave and that person does not have PTO, the employees rally and donate their PTO to the person that's affected. I mean, this is fantastic. I've never seen that in the other organizations that I've been at that touch my heart. So it is not unusual for everybody to say, hey, look, you know, Mary in this department had a family tragedy. She doesn't have enough time or, or money. And so everybody chips in through PTO. We've also recently, Charlene, established what we call a hardship fund. Mostly this is a pool of money that the higher paying folks contribute, again, on their own, of their own accord and their own free will. No one's, in, no one's encouraged. They do it from their own free will. We put money into this bucket. We've got a little committee that just e- either issues donations from this fund outright to those needing it or interest-free loans and spread out as, as far out as the, the employee can afford. So that thing of caring for our fellow workers has touched my heart. And so I think that's clearly something that I've never seen in this fashion, Charlene, in all the places I've worked. Did that help? Yes. Yes, it did. Thank you, Joe, for that, bra- for that background. I love hearing about the culture of Open Door, and I think it really speaks volumes about the mission, you know, and the culture. It's really driven by the leadership and also driven by the employees in the organization. And to hear, you know, I also haven't heard so much about organizations that contribute their own PTO to others who might need it. And that's really wonderful. And and I really love that. You know, it's such a challenging time right now, too, where everyone really needs PTO. So that's needed now more than ever, I think. And it's just wonderful to hear that organizations like Open Door exist. And I also wanted to talk a little bit more about your transition into Open Door. And I know you transitioned last year during the, <laughs> yes, during yes. the right in the yeah. middle of the pandemic. I mean, I could relate a little bit because I also transitioned to a new role in April last year. And what was transition like for you? Can you tell us about that? I was I can't... <laughs> sure it was an experience. It was, Charlene. You know what? I have... So a couple of things, right? I think you guys know my profile. I'm a Wharton MBA and a California CPA. My early career in, in as a younger person was actually with, with non-healthcare settings. I was an executive adult food company, traveled the world. This was completely non-healthcare. I transitioned to healthcare about 15 years ago. And again, went through a whole litany of, of different healthcare experiences. You know, I would say... This experience was the weirdest. I'll explain, right? I have almost always, I think everyone who's gotten a job had a series of on-site boots on the ground, in-your-face interviews, Mm -hmm. you got a job, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's quite customary. Well, this job did not go along those ways. As the CEO and the board of directors who authorized my hire, everything, Charlene, was Zoom. It was the most unusual way of getting a job and interviewing for it. And indeed, What's remarkable, Charlene, is when I actually joined the job, I prefer to be on site. It's just a little old school. I just think I do more work when I'm actually in the office 
although all the evidence is that, uh, you know what, people actually proved to do 20% more work when they're allowed to work remotely. In any event, I do like to go to the office. I do like to meet people, shake their hands. COVID stopped all of that. Here's a remarkable statistic, Charlene. I spend about 60 to 70% because I choose to in, in the office in the Eureka Arcada. And then maybe one week I'll work remotely. I prefer to be there. I didn't meet my staff in person until about nine months later. Wow. All I yeah, it is so so it was it was refreshing. About uh, two months ago was the first time I'd met people who report to me. We actually by the, of course. At wow. that time, yeah, at that time, the COVID fears had seemed dampened a little bit. I guess we'll talk about how it's starting to emerge again. But everyone had, my direct staff had their COVID shots, had had mine. We still followed all the safety protocols. But it was remarkable, Charlene. They only finally got a chance to see people like six feet away that I'd only seen on the camera. It was fantastic. But that whole episode helps to underscore just what a weird time we are in, right, that COVID has has thrust upon us. So, you know what, it's, it's a, just a cuckoo thing. And a final point on this, Charlene, just when we start thinking it's safe, right, maybe go back in the water, to use a parallel metaphor, or to go back to the office. I read this morning that yesterday might have been the second highest record COVID hospitalization. So mm-hmm. uh, what started to seem safe to come back to the office, to eat and work and, and dine with your workers, maybe it's not going to happen as quickly as some of us would like. Did that help? Yes, it did. And and I wholeheartedly agree. It's been a very weird time. I think weird is a, is a great word to describe the whole experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and just one of the words, but but yeah, it's it's really hard to do everything remotely just to have such a quick change, right? When most of Maybe most of our careers have been in person, really meeting people in person and and connecting with them on that level. And I'm also a leader who likes to build relationships in person. All of my work has also been, I mean, it's been remote and and in person, but a lot of the meetings have been on Zoom. Fortunately, I still get to go to the office, but still an interesting transition than, you know, than our norm that we, that we knew from before. So, so yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that and it's a challenging time for all of us. It and- is, Charlene. I just want so so mostly I want to say this COVID has, has been a bad thing for not just country, you know, for humanity in many ways. There are some positive sides, right? One is that that it has sparked approval of life-saving medicines and drugs in a way that we've never seen before. So that's a positive. The other thing is that we have proven or the evidence is that, that people can almost do everything remotely, which is another positive. The downside, Charlene, for folks like you, I think, and myself, who treasure, want to cultivate the personal relationships, that's been almost impossible, Charlene, right? I want a level of connectedness with the folks I work with and for and the folks that work for me. And and I don't think I've been successful at, at, at getting it the way I would prefer. Yeah, there's been a lot of creativity that need, you know, that has been done to try to get on that deeper level of connection that, you know, just to try and replicate in-person experiences and it's really hard. I do agree though that the COVID has also brought a lot of has brought some other positives including the innovation, including the rapid creation of some new technologies and new medicines and opportunities that we haven't seen before. So that's been something really fascinating to watch and 
And in terms of, you know, open door and and impact that COVID has had, uh, I just wanted to hear from you. What are some things you knew needed to happen immediately to get the clinics through this crisis when, when you first started at Open Door? So, so almost before I started, Charlene, maybe about a month before, I talked to you about my remarkable boss, right? His name is Tori Starr, again, also an RN. You know, he had the acumen, again, this is before I got there. He quickly understood that there were three sort of tactics or goals. One is, if you remember, at the height of this thing, everybody was just fearful, right? You didn't want to leave the building or your, your house, your apartment. You didn't want to see. In fact, I remember vividly, sometimes people were afraid to open a package, right? They bought from mm-hmm. Amazon. Right? We were following where you'd leave the package out in front of the doorstep, assuming someone didn't steal it. Then you'd spray it with some antiseptic or virus killer or something. And then you put gloves on and a mask and open it up, maybe in your garage or in the patio or in the house somewhere. I mean, these were panicky times, right? And so my my boss understood that. So he went about really trying to make people feel safe. That's both our patients, which is our principal obligation, but also to our employees, right? Who have the, the responsibility for caring for these populations. So he was pretty smart about it. So a couple of things, almost immediately, Within a week, Charlene, within a week, we had developed the infrastructure to almost at the flick of a switch uh, go from a, an, like an on-site visit, a clinic encounter, to a Zoom virtual encounter. Some, sometimes the care was provided over a telephone and, and oftentimes over a Zoom type where the provider could see the patient. But his acumen, his foresight to be able to retool almost within a week or two, almost offset the big drop in volume, but he accomplished a lot of things there. One is we continued our care for the people who depended, sometimes their lives depended on on us to continue to provide care. So what we did is offer a vehicle where they didn't have to come into the clinic. If you guys remember, it was so fearful that people were having heart attacks, breaking legs, and they would say, listen, I know I need to see the ED, but I think I'll take my chances, right? And so all the hospitals and the ED volumes dropped. People were fearful of coming in with a heart attack and then never leaving the hospital because they're going to pick up COVID. So that same fear, I think, we sensed across the entire country, including our patients. So patients did not come in, but we were ready. So we, we eased the anxiety on the patients for our own provider staff. Charlene, we did the same. We allowed our provider staff, doctors, practitioners to actually work from their own kitchens in their own homes and treat patients who themselves were in their kitchens and in their own homes. And for the worker, non-clinical staff like myself, almost all of us were outfitted with the right tools and equipment, cellular phones, video equipment to be able to work remotely. So to wrap up on that story, I think he had the acumen, he had the team, the infrastructure so that if you didn't have to be in the clinic and expose yourself unnecessarily to COVID, you didn't have to. And we gave them the tools and the abilities to successfully manage it. So I think that's one of the most remarkable things that have happened. Yes, it's great to hear about the adaptability, the the quickness for people to actually, you know, change to new platforms to to provide the much needed care for our patients especially with all the fear that was happening coming into the clinics, coming in, into the hospitals. I remember that very clearly still. And, you know, with, with all the changes with, it was very clear that there were a lot of changes with in-person care and 
with patient care overall. And, you know, when it also comes to the financial impact, because I know that there have been big financial impact with COVID in many different ways, what would you say was the biggest financial impact that COVID has had on the organization? So that's a good question, Charlene. I'm going to say similar to other healthcare providers, right? All the large and even small hospitals, what they saw is what I had alluded to earlier. The patient volumes drop like a rock. For many hospitals, the ED is sort of the feeder pool for some of the inpatient care, right? Someone comes in uh, with uh, with a peak care episode and then they discover, ah, you know what? This person needs surgery. We need a heart transplant. So all of that's what happens is When people are afraid to come in for care because they think they're going to get sick from COVID and die, the volumes drop, right? So it has been a perpetual problem. I think all of us use similar to the tactics I've described over here. Financial impact for us was softened. I'm going to tell you, thank thank the folks who help run the nation, whatever political affiliation you're in. I can tell you that the COVID CARES Act from previous administration did provide us much valued funds, right? We never really laid off anybody. There were conditions to the money, but we never laid off anybody. And as I said, we used a lot of the funds to help outfit both our provider staff and our non-clinical staff to be able to do their jobs remotely. That source of money was life-saving for the organization, right? Our own financial wellness is critical to providing for the health wellness of our patients. Those funds were mission critical, Charlene. So I would say if there was any one single biggest financial thing, yes, it was the money, the grant income that we received in the previous year to be able to continue our mission. And to the, to the credit of the new administration who announced the, the uh, forget exactly the act, there was a passage of a bill that got cleared unanimously at the federal government that brought a whole bunch of funds to all healthcare providers, including California federally qualified health centers like ourselves. So I would say they, the funding that came in from outside grant sources has, has been maybe the single biggest thing that has helped us to weather this COVID storm. Yes, thank you so much, Joe. And on the topic of finances too, you know, with the pandemic, there have also been a lot of temporary expenses too, right? If a lot more of the face shields, a lot more of the masks and gloves. And how how have you and your team been able to navigate these these expenses, which might be temporary, you know, getting surplus of some of these supplies or or just dedicating funds to other areas to support the pandemic? Um, how can these financial decisions be made just knowing that the return on investment may not be long term? Sure. That's a good question, Charlene. So, as you know, almost all of us know when when this when this monster COVID uh, uh, hit the nation, right? There was a scramble for PPE, right? Personal protective equipment. These are gloves, the masks, the N95s, all of these protective things. Like a stampede, everybody, all healthcare providers, even even private people, right? Even my own family was like, "Wow, we got to get these masks." And, and, and uh, you know, this, this is that you could buy like 100 for $10 on Amazon. Well, just of the story is correct, right? Maybe the audience knows when they themselves tried to buy the equipment for their own personal use at their house, you couldn't find it. There were three months waiting lists for just plastic gloves, rubber gloves that you could get for 10 cents. They were now like $10. Everybody remembers was panic. Now, we ourselves... Charlene struggled, right? So the prices just went through the roof. These protective 
pieces of equipment are vital for healthcare in general. But what had happened is this mad stampede of healthcare providers and just citizenry, just the public scrambling for the same things caused exorbitant prices, right? So oftentimes we had to wait. And like other healthcare organizations, we had to reuse masks, right? Until the supply chain started to fix itself. And then again, most of us know that many organizations use just-in-time manufacturing and inventory. What had happened is just-in-time works well when not everybody's asking for the same thing at the same time. So we had to ration, and that caused serious impact for us. Now, I am happy that that price reduction has, has dropped. If you go to Costco, you'll see all the masks you want. You'll see the hand lotion, the antiseptic hand lotion, and you see the masks. So I think we're past that. We are ready. Investments, Charlene, that we did were more long range, right? It was buying equipment, assuring bandwidth, sometimes providing smartphones for our patients. So I think the the smaller type investments, the cubicles, that wasn't such a big expense for us. Indeed, we didn't do so much of it. You know, we focused on the heavy infrastructure investment to make sure that we had the equipment to do the Zoom remotes. And here's what I would say as a closing topic on those investments. You're right. You can't always measure a return on investment. But I will tell you this, that there was a high emotional return on investment. When our provider staff and the non-clinical staff knew that they were safe, they could work remotely, provide care to the patients who themselves were remotely. So there is a dollar figure, Charlene, that I can't quantify as how much value that brought to us. Okay. And then I would finally say all that infrastructure, that return mm-hmm. on investment continues. Let me explain. One of the good things, one of the good things of all of this is that the video care, the virtual care has It's like a genie that's come out of the bottle. Let me explain. Now that many of us have had our own care episodes done over Zoom, even when COVID goes away, why Mm -hmm. would you want to drive a couple of hours to your specialist provider, right? Even myself, Charlene, see occasion the specialist Mm -hmm. at UCLA, that's hours for me. One of my last care episodes, I just did a Zoom encounter. He popped up, said, hello, your labs look good. That was it. That would have been an all-day trip for me, Charlene, in a non-COVID setting. And what I'm saying is, even when COVID goes away, now that we have tasted this method of care delivery, it's, it's here for keeps. So all that investment was not wasted. In fact, we continue to yield uh, benefits from it. Did that help? It did. Thank you so much, Joe. And I want to talk a little bit, too, about nonprofits, right? Because 2020 was... A bit of a weird year, and I think weird is the word of the year and for the past few years now. But, you know, charitable giving reached a record level, but at the same time, many lower income communities have struggled. And so there has been a lot of talk of K-shaped recovery. But meanwhile, the pandemic and various political causes and other events have absorbed a lot of grants and charitable dollars. But your area in particular saw a lot of need centered around the wildfires. And so how how do you deal with this kind of uncertainty from financial perspective? Because there's been just a lot of, you know, unforeseen challenges that have come in addition to to COVID. Thank you, Charlene. So back to what what we think is the word du jour, or maybe for the month or for the year, weird has been weird, right? I mean, it really has been weird. I spoke earlier about how we responded to this weirdness. Almost a year ago to this day, Charlene, I was, again, I prefer to be in the office rather than work remotely. That area in which I work is right by the ocean. I mean, it's right there by the the coast. 
the wildfires back then, which I don't think are near as bad as they are right now, was just, again, back to Mm -hmm. the weird, almost scary. So ours is a coastal town. Normally, the beginning of the day is a little cold, cool, foggy and wet. And then in the afternoon, the sun is shining, the air is crisp and fresh. It, It almost feels like fall every day, right, throughout the year. What happened is for almost a week, the sky was Yeah, orange. I remember that. I remember mm-hmm. one day, again, almost a year ago to this day, mm-hmm. it was in the middle of the day, Charlene, it was so dark and scary. It yes, seemed really almost felt apocalyptic. Like, yes. <laughs> so, it's so, so in addition to the COVID anxiety, the, the smoke, and now the running out of water, right? You know, it does seem to be a scary, not just weird time to be living, but a time to be work. It is just a crazy thing. And I don't think California is the only state that has these kind of anxieties, but it is part of the difficulty. But that smoke thing did a year ago, and maybe even now, the cause, what I'm going to say, is an influx of, of smoke in refugees from some of the outlying areas that, that are real vulnerable to the fires themselves. So what happened last year, and it's happening now, caused an influx of refugees of folks that are in the outlying areas in the mountains where the fires are threatening. They come into town, they need residency, they need temporary lodging. So these are just not weird times, but challenging times. You know, we do our best to contribute as a healthcare provider to find suitable lodging for the folks that are impacted by this, right? We're principally a healthcare organization, but I, as I alluded to earlier, we do much more than healthcare. We we care about individuals, both our own workers, our patients, and the underlying, in the areas, in the underlying communities. Did that answer your question? It did. Thank you. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of impacts with fires that we don't, you know, that we may not think about. And I think the communities where, where that has a real big impact, it's especially from what you've seen. I think that that's really important to to let people know about because, I mean, it's one thing if if there's smoke, but if you're really impacted by it and maybe you have a health condition, it's just it's really those times where organizations like yours are so, so much needed. And I do want to talk a little bit too, when it comes to COVID, I do also want to talk about nurses because, you know, a lot of our listeners on this podcast are in nursing leadership. A lot of them are chief nursing officers, nursing directors. And so in in leadership programs, nurse leaders are often encouraged to form great relationships with their CFOs. What are your thoughts on that? You know, that relationship and how, and as a CFO, what are some ways you think that nurses could really strengthen that relationship? Those are, those are, you covered a lot of mileage <laughs> there, Charlene. Let me see if I can stick with it. Okay. So first I want to tell you that our workforce is about 700 strong. The, the nursing core is part and parcel of the fabric of the work we do. We have about 60, last I checked. So they are anywhere from 10 to 15, sometimes 20% of the workforce. Frankly, without them, we could not function and have the success that we have had, right? Unlike hospital where you have a chief nursing officer, we don't typically have a chief nursing officer. But as I said earlier, even my own boss or CEO has been chief nursing officer. And that clinical background, the RN has helped him immeasurably. You don't need to be a medical clinician, practitioner to be the CEO of an organization, but I got to tell you, it does help. So he knows and understands the clinical issues at play when we are taking care of our patients and also understands the interaction between our nursing corps, the rest of the provider workforce. Let me say this. I've been in healthcare for 15 years. I've never been in an organization where nurses were not part or a key component 
of the fabric of the workforce and the care mission. You simply can't be a healthcare provider without having a cadre, sometimes a large workforce of nurses to do the job. You just can't exist and you can't function properly. So nurses are super dear and near to my heart and to all the healthcare organizations that I've worked in. Let me tell you this, in those 15 years, Charlene, I can't remember a time where there wasn't a nursing shortage. It seems like this thing is an ever, ever prevalent problem. And I don't know enough, Charlene, to tell you what's caused it. Clearly, sometimes it has to do with money. Sometimes it doesn't have to do with money. The point is, they are very much needed. And so what happens is you have these nursing shortages, which, as I said, in 15 years, I don't remember a year where everybody said, nope, don't have to worry about the nurses that are covered. No, 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 no. Every year, Shirley, that I can remember, there's a struggle. There's a race for hiring and then now retaining competent nurses. So the thing is super important. And what it means is the industry understands you cannot function without nurses. Okay, back to the question about personal relationships. I'll tell you, I've been in healthcare for 15 years. What makes me happy is when I have developed relationship with my peer group, as I said earlier, my direct reports and the people I work for. But some of the most important relationships have been fostered when I've made a a connection with the nurses, oftentimes the chief nursing executive, the chief nursing officer, but oftentimes the rank and file nurses. One of the things that I am most happy with is when I get a chance to talk to nurses and explain to them the financial impact of the life-saving work they do and how all that stuff makes its way to financial statement. I don't necessarily think we need nurses that can be experts at patient care and expert accountants. Everybody's got a role in life, but oftentimes, Charlene, I have taken the time to sit with nurses and say, look, would you like me to explain the period financials. Do you want me to show you? I'd love to show you how that thing that care you did, that episode of care with the patient in this room or this modality, how what you did not only saved that patient, but this is the money component of all the stuff you did. You know, Charlene, I was blessed a few years back. I was taking a healthcare course myself at Cal State Bakersfield. And I don't remember, there might've been 50 people in the room, about 20 of them were nurses. I actually had a project group with many of those nurses where I actually taught about how it was that the work they did made its way to the financial statements. Healthcare accounting is complicated, maybe the most complicated. You know, as I said, I'm a CPA. I have to tell you, healthcare accounting is very difficult. So to have a nurse want to understand is a challenge, but it was great. And so what made me happy, Charlene, is many of them said, wow, Mr. DeMond, or Joe, this is the first time anybody ever explained. I love understanding. Thank you so much. So I cultivate that thing, Charlene. If anything makes me happy is when I can bring clarity, understanding to the nursing corps for the work they do and how it makes its way to the financial statement and the wellness of the organizations. That's great, Joe. Thank you. I really appreciate what you've shared. And I just know firsthand from my experience in nursing and many different opportunities and positions in nursing, it's been so important to have that connection with with the chief financial officer, with with managers in business and in finance within the organization. And it's really been a great relationship to serve both ways. You know, it really clues in both parties on the different pieces of the organization for healthcare. And and it's a really, I think, necessary relationship to strengthen that and to provide that education both ways, right? And so Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, Charlene, I would say this to the audience, right? Many of who are nurses, I would say, you know, if if 
So what you, you are in this business because you believe in serving others, right? I also believe that for administrative financial folks like me, aspire to the servant leader concept. I think one of the best things you can do is reach out to your CFO and say, you know what, Mr. D or Mr. J, I really want to understand the financial statements. Can you take a few moments? I think they would, many of them would be happy to walk you through. So don't be fearful. I know accounting can be kind of complicated, but I think I would encourage you if you haven't done so already, reach out to the finance and accounting staff. They are, if they're doing their job right, they're precisely to help you to understand what it is you do and its impact of an intro statement. So that's that's one advice, Charlene, I would say, take the initiative. Okay, reach out to them and say, explain, please. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. I think it's really important for nurses to also take the initiative in building that relationship. And it's really beneficial. And thank you for sharing that advice. And, you know, this has been such a wonderful discussion, Joe. I feel like we could talk about so much more. I'm just really <laughs> invested in the population that you serve. I really love you know, FQHCs. And I just really thank you for the work that you're doing and the work that the organization is doing. And I really just want to ask you too, is there any way that that audience or listeners to this podcast can reach out to you or learn more about your work or any websites they could visit? Thank you, Charlene, so much for that. First, let me thank you again on behalf of myself personally, also for my organization, I appreciate everything that the California nurses, all nurses do. So it is an honor and a privilege to be here. I don't have my LinkedIn profile memorized, but if anyone wants to look me up, I'm more than happy to make the connection and help any way I can. I think if you have access to LinkedIn, just look up Joseph DeMont. I don't think there's but two of us. So you're going <laughs> to you have a 50% chance of getting me at the, at, the, at the outset. So yes, reach out to me. I'm more than happy to help any way I can. The other thing I would say is I would encourage uh, everybody, if you're interested, you can look up my organization, which I've only briefly described, right? We do fantastic work, a wonderful mission. Nurses are part of that mission. We are www.opendoorhealth.com, just as it is, opendoorhealth.com. So you'll learn a little bit about us. And then separately, you can hit some of the, if you just Google federally qualified health centers, you'll, if you don't already know about them, you'll understand the mission that they do. And we're one of those. And that's it. That's wonderful. Thank you, Joe. And again, to our listeners, you could find Joseph DeMont on LinkedIn. You could also learn more about Open Door, opendoorhealth.com, www.opendoorhealth.com. So thank you again so much, Joe. It was such a pleasure to have this conversation with you today. And again, appreciate all that you do. Thank you so much, everybody. Bye.